All right, friends, while they receive the offering, you guys can pull out your scripture journals that you got last week, or you can pull out your Bibles, either one. Um, If you didn't get one of these last week, maybe you weren't here last week. Uh, my friend Lindsay is in the back, and she'd love to give you one. If you just raise your hand, she'll, she'll actually bring you a scripture journal. There's a few here in the front, somewhere in the back. Just keep your hand up. She'll bring you one. Lindsay actually helped create this, along with Josh Gardner, a minister of students. Um, and really, it's just to be a resource to you as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount, something that you can kind of journal in, read through the Sermon on the Mount, track along with us. You can bring it with you on Sunday. During the week, you can journal together. You can open that up. Uh, we're going to start again on the first page there in the Beatitudes, because we didn't get through all of them last last week, and then we'll, at the end, we'll kind of talk a little bit more about salt and light. So we'll get into that uh, towards the end of our time this morning. Last week, for those of you who are here, you remember, we began the Sermon on the Mount in, in the Beatitudes, talking about this idea that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says there's one of two outcomes for you. There's only one of two outcomes. You can be like the man who built his house on the rock or the man who built his house on the sand, right? You can, you can hear these words of mine, Jesus says. You can hear the sort of the mountain. You can actually put them into practice in your life. You can begin to, to do these things in your life, to, to work to make them true of your life and build your house on the rock. Or, or you can be like the one who hears the words but really doesn't care about them. He listens to the sermon of the world versus the sermon of the mount. You begin to put your hopes and your dreams and your identity into things that are not of the Sermon of the Mount, but in the Sermon of the World. You're like the man who builds his house in the sand. And one day the rain will come, the winds will blow, and it will test your life. And it will declare which one you built your house on. Did you build your house on the rock, or did you build your house on the sand? Have you followed the way of Jesus or have you followed the way of the world? But we also said this, man, your kind of white knuckle grip is not enough. Like no matter how hard you strive and try and strain, the Sermon on the Mount will not become true of your life by your own strength and by your own power. We must work at it. We must resolve to work at it. But it's not enough. We need the Spirit of Christ to do a work in us if we're ever going to see any fruit. And especially as we lean into this next kind of set of Beatitudes, the, the last four Beatitudes, man, these things are not producible. Maybe, maybe in one moment you could produce it. But for your life to be marked by these things, like you, you don't have that in you. And I don't mean that as an insult. I don't have it in me. We need the Spirit of Christ. We must pray these things into our lives. And so the first four uh, Beatitudes are actually a little bit different than the last four Beatitudes. So last week, the first four Beatitudes, we talked about how each one of these things, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, uh, blessed are the, the, the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Each one of these things drive us to Christ. As we experience our poverty of spirit, as we mourn over our sin or over the kind of the outworking of our sin in the world, I mean, these things drive us to the person of Christ. They drive us to the foot of the cross. The next four Beatitudes are the result of that. It's the outworking of that. So as we're driven, as Christ does this in us, reveals his glory and his goodness to us, drives us to himself, saves us, begins to produce a work that comes out of us. That's the next four Beatitudes that we're going to see today. So the question that must be asked for the follower of Jesus in the room is this. Are these true of me? As we walk through these last four Beatitudes, we must ask the question, do I see this in my life? Is my life marked by these four things? I know not everybody in the room is a follower of Jesus. 
But for those of us who are, man, we must wrestle with these four Beatitudes. And so let's dive into it. I'm going to read it for us again uh, from Jonathan Pennington, who's a theologian. He wrote a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And he translates that word, I talked about it last week, but just to kind of catch you up, the word uh, in, in the Greek, makarios, which is translated blessed uh, or happy, uh, blessed, probably in your, in your translation of the Bible. He says, man, and actually theologians would agree, it's not a very good word for makarios. It's not the right word, but there is no right word. Like we don't have an English word for this word makarios. It's, it describes this kind of whole life state of being in a good way, right? I mean, this person is just like shining. They're just like radiating. They're just, and they're, they're, their life is just... Good. Like, we don't have a single word for that, but he says, man, the, kind of the best word that maybe we have is one of our favorite words here is flourishing. And so here's his translation of the last four Beatitudes, picking up in verse 7 of chapter 5 in the Gospel of Matthew. Flourishing are the merciful because they will receive mercy. Flourishing are the pure in heart because they will see God. Flourishing are the peacemakers, because they will be called children of God. Flourishing are the ones persecuted on account of righteousness, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Flourishing are you when people revile and slander and speak all kinds of evil things against you on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, because your reward is great in heaven. In the same way, people slandered the prophets who came before you. All right. So the first one, flourishing are the merciful, for they will receive mercy, right? Well, what, is, what does that mean, to be, to be one who is merciful, to have a, a human capacity for mercy, which is a rare thing in our day, friends. It's a rare thing. Mercy, by definition, you can, you can Google it. That's what I did. Uh, mercy uh, reads this way. It says, compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone, now listen, whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. So it's compassion and, and grace, forgiveness towards somebody with whom it's, it's in your power to harm them. To, to, to bring harm upon them. But you say, no, 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 I'm not going to. Yesterday uh, was my son. He's five years old. Our, our oldest son, five years old. It was his first wrestling tournament. Winston started wrestling this fall. And we've been like, nah, you're not ready for a tournament yet. And he's been like, begging us to go. We're like, all right, fine. And so we walk in and I, I grew up wrestling. And so the chaos and the insanity that is happening in this room is kind of all, I, I'm used to it. But my wife, not so much. And so she, you see these like, four and five-year-old kids uh, wrestling. And the first thing she sees is there's a match going on and there's this kid who is wrestling and he is just weeping, just sobbing uncontrollably. And like his coach is in the corner, he's like, keep wrestling. And like the other coach of the kid who's like pummeling him is like, finish him, right? And my wife is like, what is happening? He's like, sweep the leg. And you're like, what is happening? She, and she's like, what do I do? Right now, what she's feeling in that moment friends is not mercy it's not what my wife is feeling is she feels compassion she feels man sympathy for this kid there's sorrow she wants to help but she can't the only person in the room that can be merciful to that kid in that moment is the kid who's pummeling him and his coach is like kill him like put him out of his misery right it's like 
that's the only person in the room that can show mercy because he's the only one who has the capacity to do him more harm in that moment. It's like that when you're growing up on the playground, there was a game that we played called Mercy, right? Where you like interlock fingers. And the game is like, who can like bend the other person's fingers back as far as they possibly can until that person cries for mercy, right? And so if you're, if you're winning the game, right, you, the person is screaming mercy because they know, like, my, I've lost. My fingers are either going to fall off or the person's going to stop pushing on them, right? And so, you, and that person has a choice in that moment. It's like, okay, I can stop, I can grant them mercy, or I can just keep going until their fingers fall off. But the consequence of like what mom's going to do is probably not worth it. So like you stop and you like let them, let them go. And when you're a kid, it's like, ha ha ha, that's fun. We play a game called Mercy. But when you're an adult, it's not fun anymore. The reality is that there's people in this room beyond a shadow of a doubt who have done something to somebody. You've said the wrong thing. You had that argument with that family member and it didn't go well. And they have not extended you mercy. They've pushed you out. You're no longer invited to the thing. They don't want you around. They've defriended you. They, they don't talk to you anymore. It's painful. And the Sermon of the World says, Man, when you, if that person's jacked up, if that person, if that person messed up, if that person did something wrong, and that's on them, they need to figure that out. They, they need, man, you make your bed, you lie in it. Like, that's the sermon of the world, man. Step on their throat. Don't, don't give them mercy. Don't even let them up. But the sermon of the mouth says, man, if you want to truly flourish, man, it's the merciful that are going to flourish. We've said this a ton here at Flourishing Grace, again and again and again and again and again, minute. for the human to actually truly flourish in the kingdom of God, the way that flourishing is designed to happen, you must care about the flourishing of others more than your own. More than your own flourishing, more than your own comfort. You must care about the flourishing of others. And it just think about it for a minute. Like in your marriage, when you care about the flourishing of your spouse more than you care about your own comfort, your own, your own flourishing, your, your own whatever, right? It, it, it makes your marriage better. And your family, when you care about the flourishing of your kids more than your own, man, it, not only is it going to make them better, but it's going to make you better. And your community of friends, when you care about the flourishing of your community of friends more than you care about your own, it makes the community better, but it also makes as the community gets better, so do, so do you. Within the church, within you right here at Flourishing Grace, when you care about the flourishing of others here within the church, more than you care about your own comfort, your own security, your own needs, your own flourishing, man, it makes the community better. And as the community gets better, so do you. Flourishing are those who actually extend mercy. The Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon of the World they do not get along. So here's my question for you, friends. Who in your life right now owes you? Who owes you? And I, I don't necessarily mean money. Maybe it's money, but I, I mean like an apology. Like who in your life are you kind of holding a grudge against? You're saying, man, listen, they, 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 need to come, they, need, they owe me an apology. They need to make that right. Friends, that's not mercy. Who owes you? Is it a family member, or somebody in your office, a coworker, a friend? Who have you cast out? Who, who have you pushed out? Who are you not talking to anymore? 
flourishing of the merciful. Mercy marks the life of the one described in the first four Beatitudes. If you've been lavished upon in your spiritual poverty or sweetly comforted in your mourning or wrecked by the worth of Christ or satisfied by his own righteousness, who are you going to withhold from? Who are you going to withhold mercy from? I don't care who they are or what they've done. Those who have received the mercy of God extend mercy. Supernatural Christ-produced mercy is the evidence that he is doing a work in you. And through that work alone will you receive the mercy of God. Right? The supernatural kind of Christ-produced mercy in the follower of Jesus is the evidence that he is doing a work in them. And it's the evidence that you're going to receive the mercy of God. Is it in you? Like, is that evidence in your life? Do you experience a supernatural capacity for mercy? Do you extend mercy to those around you? The next is this. Flourishing are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Flourishing are the pure in heart. What does that mean to be pure in heart? And the heart is, is a hard thing. What Jesus is talking about here is not our physical heart, right? He's not talking about your biological heart. He's talking about and something, something more than that. Uh, theologian uh, R.T. Kendall put it this way. Uh, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he writes this about the heart. He says, the heart is the seat of personality. The personality is the sum total of mind, emotions, and will. The mind refers to our intellect or understanding. Our emotions refer to our feelings. The will refers to our making a decision or commitment. All three summed up, mean our heart. Jesus said one could commit adultery in his heart. Matthew 5, 28. He also said that where one's treasure is, there is one's heart. Matthew 6, 21. One could honor God with his lips, but the heart may be far from him. Matthew 15, 8. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus also said in Matthew 12, 34. He said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all one's heart and soul and mind. Matthew 22, 37. We can infer from these statements that the heart is the real you. Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Proverbs 4, 23. What you believe in your heart is what you truly believe. Here's what he's getting at. Man, at the core of who you are, the thing that drives your mouth, the thing that drives your words, the thing that drives your emotions, your, your anger, your jealousy, your bitterness, the thing that drives it all is your human heart. The thing that makes you who you are is this, is this deep thing that we would just kind of refer to as your heart. And those who have the pure heart, those are the ones that are going to actually flourish. The problem is, humans don't have pure hearts. We don't have pure hearts. You see, we, we believe that the reality is that every single issue that we face in our life, every single issue that we face in the world today is a result of the human heart. It's brokenness and it's wickedness. Theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones, we read it from his commentary last week and we'll be reading it from it a bunch. He writes it this way. He says, the terrible, tragic fallacy of the last hundred years 
has been to think that all men's troubles are due to his environment. And that to change the man, you have nothing to do but change his environment. That is a tragic fallacy. It overlooks the fact that it was in paradise that man fell. It was in a perfect environment that he first went wrong. So to put man in a perfect environment cannot solve his problems. All the troubles of the world arise out of the human heart, which we are told by Jeremiah is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Our tragic failure to realize this is responsible for the state of the world at this moment. The trouble is in the heart and the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. That is the problem. Friends, the Sermon on the World says, the reason why you are not experiencing deep contentment, deep human flourishing, the reason why is because your environment needs to change. Your, your circumstances need to change. If you just had a better job, there would be. If you just had a better spouse, there would be. If your kids would just be behaved, then, then you would flourish. If I could just have a, a better house or a better car, I mean, that's where it's at. It's in my environment. It's in the condition of my life. It's in my circumstances. If I could just change my circumstances. The Sermon of the World says, no, 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 no. Your heart is lying to you. Your heart is lying to you. Your, your heart is saying, just, the Sermon of the World says, man, just gratify the desires of your heart. The Sermon of the Mount says, man, that's building your house on the sand. Sermon of the Mount says, man, if you want to truly flourish, you need a pure heart. Who, who purifies the heart? Not a trick question. Sunday school answer will do. Jesus, right? Jesus purifies the heart. I said at the beginning of this, I mean, there's, there's certain things in the Sermon of the Mount that, that it doesn't matter how hard you try, you, you're not going to make this true of you. Like, you're not, you're not just going to wake up tomorrow and say, okay, my goal today is to have a pure heart. It's not going to happen. Your heart is deceitful above all, Jeremiah says. It's just, it's lying to you. Your heart is lying to you. Your heart wants the sermon of the world. We must be people who sit down and wrestle every day. I mean, which, which sermon am I listening to? Which sermon am I practicing? What is my heart telling me? And is that true according to the word of God? And then we must pray this into our lives. Christ, give me a pure heart. Cleanse me. Let me, uh, give, me give me the love and the treasure for, for you above all things. When we begin to treasure Christ above all things, our loves begin to fall into the right order. But you can't treasure Christ above all things. Christ must give you a glimpse of his worth and his beauty. And his, right? This is the outworking right, of, of the first four, first four Beatitudes. Right? As we receive, kind of the blinders pulled off, we receive this view of the glory of Christ, the worth and the beauty of Christ. We become a people who are meek. We submit our lives to him. The outworking of that is this kind of pure heart. This is, I mean, I love Christ more than I love anything else in this world. And all of our loves begin to align in the right order. And we can walk in purity. Supernatural Christ produced pure purity of heart is the evidence that he is doing a work in you. And through that work alone, you will see God flourishing of the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
Only the pure in heart will truly flourish in this life and only the pure in heart will see God in the next. Next, flourishing are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. It's fascinating that peacemaking, right? Peacemaking is a common theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Again and again and again and again, Jesus is gonna talk about this idea. It is kind of at the root of the life of a Christian. This is so important for us to understand and to grow in our capacity for making peace. But the reality is this is a rare thing. This is a rare thing in our world today. Think about it. Who are the peacemakers in our world today? In politics. Who just stands out as like somebody who's just like making peace? You laugh, but you just can't think of anybody. In in religion, who's making peace? Like, I don't know if you read the news, but like the Catholic Church, like they put, they're putting the gloves on, man. They're, it's coming to blows. Like, it's just all that war. Like, all, all around us, everywhere you look, man, there is, there's not an ounce of peace. Like, who in your office, who in your neighborhood is like, who's just like the promoter of peace, a maker of peace? Who, who is wading into that? Who in your family is the person that's just like making peace with everybody and just kind of restoring broken relationships everywhere? The the reality is that the Christian is called to be the one who does not live numb to the strained and broken relationships of our world and of our society, but is deeply affected by it. Is to be one who, who mourns over the brokenness that we see all around us. The Christian is the one who can be on the, kind of the front lines of peacemaking because the Christian realizes that, that if, 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 this, if the relationship between my brother or between my sister, between people in this room is strained or broken, I mean, so is their relationship with Jesus. And that's not okay. The peacemaker realizes, man, I need to help restore what is broken between my friends or between me and my friends because if not, then my relationship with Jesus is strained and broken. It's not okay. Jesus says it this way. We're going to unpack this in a few weeks. But he says it this way in Matthew 5, 23 through 24. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Jesus says, listen, you can try to make peace with God but if, you're, if your peace with your brother or your sister in Christ, if, if your human relationship is strained or broken, this is for nothing. This is not going to work. You need to be a peacemaker. You, you must restore the relationships that are broken in your life and the relationships that are broken in other people's lives. And it sounds like a fun job, right? To just be one who like makes peace. Who doesn't, who doesn't want that job? To like restore broken relationships between people. Like to be that person in your, in your, and maybe in your place of work or in your family, in your community, in your friends. Like that sounds great. It's brutal business, man. It's brutal. Peacemaking is wading into other people's anger. Brokenness. Frustration violence, fully knowing that you're probably not going to walk away unscathed. Peacemakers have scars as a result of their attempting to make peace. And Christ says, man, that's the person who's actually going to flourish. 
The person who's going to flourish in this life is the one who is willing to wade into the mess of others and in their own mess. Willing to have hard conversations, not afraid to say, hey, what you said to that person, that's not okay. The way you're treating that person, you can't, you can't do that. The person who is willing to wade in and have hard conversations and take the blows, take the punishment that's going to come, that's the person that's going to actually flourish. Christ is the ultimate peacemaker. In order to make peace between you and he, he did not sit back waiting for you to get over yourself and apologize or figure out your life and come crawling back to him. No. He waded into your brokenness and was brutally beaten, crucified to make peace between you and God. The peacemaker the true peacemaker is willing to be crucified for the sake of the relationship. Once again, the true peacemaker cares about the flourishing of others more than he cares about the flourishing of, him, of, his, of his self. The peacemaker is willing to, 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 to take the shots, to absorb the blows for the sake of others' relationships. He values the relationships of others more than he values his own comfort. That's the peacemaker. And the peacemaker will be called a son of God or child of God because that's who Christ is. The peacemaker, the one who's willing, who's willing to be crucified for the sake of the relationship is the one who is going to be adopted as a son or daughter of God. Lastly, flourishing are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's fascinating this falls up peacemaking because I, th I think Jesus is kind of saying the same thing. He's saying, man, if, if you wade into this, if you, become a, if you become a peacemaker, like you're going to be persecuted. If, if, you, if you try to restore righteousness in the hearts of others, it's not going to go well for you. It's not going to go well for you. Now, a, a note on persecution, right? Jesus is making a promise to those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Those are the ones who are going to flourish, right? I think we want to wear the badge of persecution. Persecution, by definition, is this. is hostility and ill treatment, especially because of race or political or religious beliefs, okay? So, so how you vote, what you believe in, or the color of your skin is what, it was what might bring persecution on your life. But Jesus says only one of those buckets, and not even, not even one of those buckets, is what flourishes, those who are going to flourish in their persecution are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So for those who say, man, my kid is being persecuted at school because he's a bully or because he's disruptive or because they're shy or introverted, right? Listen, the promise of Jesus doesn't apply. I'm not saying that it's right or wrong that they're being persecuted. I'm just saying it doesn't apply. The person who says, man, I'm being persecuted because I've been put in jail for doing this crime. It's like, that's not persecution, first of all. Second of all, the promise of Jesus doesn't apply. Like we want to wear the badge of persecution. But the reality is, is that it was, it's unrighteousness that brought punishment or discord, not righteousness that brought true persecution. Persecution in and of itself is not proof of Christ. Persecution is not proof of Christ. Only persecution for righteousness sake. And Jesus goes on to explain this and unpack this in the next couple of verses. Basically what he says is, man, when you act like me, 
when you are merciful, when you are a peacemaker, when you're pure in heart, and the world comes at you for that, just like they came at me for that, true flourishing is there. Because true flourishing is found in him. He's the source of all true human flourishing. Now, what happens when the world lays hold of this? What happens when the world sees this? Well, you can flip to the next page in your scripture journal if you're following along. Jesus writes, says this, he says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the people's feet. Verse 14, you are the lie of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All right, who is you? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Who is you? You see, Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's gone up on the Mount. He's sat down on the flat place, the plain. He's teaching. His disciples have gathered near. But then there's also a massive crowd filled with people who are on board, who are, that are followers of the way of Jesus, and people who are absolutely not. He's not talking about everybody. Who is you? We got to remind ourselves that he's preaching a sermon. It's not a hard stop and kind of moving on to the next subject. This is absolutely, totally attached to the Beatitudes. You is the person described in the Beatitudes. You, the poor in spirit, the mourner, the meek, the hungry, the thirsty for righteousness. You, the merciful. You, the pure in heart. You, the peacemaker. You, the persecuted for righteousness sake. That's who he's talking about. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. But if salt loses its taste, it's no longer good for anything. How does salt lose its taste? Anybody know? What? I drink the water. What's the water taste like? Salt. It's a trick question. It can't lose its taste. Can't lose its taste. You can take salt, you can, you know, from the snowstorm like a few weeks ago, it's like laying out in the parking lot. You can go out there and you pop it in your mouth. I wouldn't advise it, but I promise you it'll taste like salt and dirt. You can take salt that's been sitting out for years and put it in your mouth. It tastes like salt. You put it in water. Drink the water, it's going to taste like salt. Salt can't lose its taste. So what's Jesus getting at here? You see, the early audience would have realized that he's telling kind of two parallel illustrations, right? In the second illustration, he clarifies. He he clarifies. He says, you are the light of the world. How can a city on a hill be hidden? Jesus says it can't. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. What he's saying is salt can't lose its taste. It can't lose taste. What he's saying is, when he he describes the Beatitudes, he's saying, man, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what your life tastes like, and this is what your life looks like. If you aren't, it isn't. 
Like, you can't have it in you the other way. This is either true of you or it's not true of you. Like, you are either the salt of the world and the light of the world, or you're not. It's either true of you or it's not. And you can't make it true of you. Like, if salt loses its taste, and you can't, you can't regain that. You can't make it taste that way again. Like, you can't take a rock and make it taste like salt. It doesn't work that way. It's either salt or it's not. Christ is the only way, he is the only way that these things become true of us. And so I've said, yeah, yes, we, yes, we work at it. Yes, we sit down every week and we stack the Sermon on the Mount next to the Sermon on the World and we ask ourselves, man, which one am I believing? Which one am I practicing? But we pray this into our lives. Say, like, Christ, make this true of me. Make me salty in a good way. Give me, make me the light of the world. So the world might look into my life and see you, see something different than the sermon of the world. And so followers of Jesus in the room, man, I, I, I said at the very beginning, there's a question that we must ask ourselves. And so I just want to ask it right now. Is this true of you? Are you known in your community, in your family, in your place of work as a peacemaker? Is there a supernatural mercy that kind of flows out of you into people who don't deserve it? Is your heart pure? Or are you loving the things of the world more than you love Christ? I think so many of us think that we can have it both ways. And everything Jesus says is, just doesn't work that way. Doesn't matter how often you go to church or how often you read your Bible, you're either salt or you're not. And, and, and the defining factor is not how often you go to church or how often you read your Bible. It's what he's doing in you and what he's doing through you. That, that's what defines that. So if you look at your life and if you're honest with yourself and, and you don't see those things, then you got to do some work this morning. You got to do some work with Christ. Say, I, I don't see this in me, but I want to. Maybe you're brand new to all of this and then you didn't grow up going to church and you just kind of came in here this morning. Maybe this is all new to you. Friends, Christ wants to produce something in you. He wants to create a new way of life. And we're going to be unpacking that for the next few months here at Flourishing Grace. And I hope you come along for the journey. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you this morning. And I pray right now for, for those who maybe have been going through the motions for so long. I pray that you kind of just awaken them this morning to the reality that, that maybe, just maybe, their heart's been lying to them. They can have it both ways. They can build their, they can build their life, they can build their life on the sand and it's, it's good and it's right. And as long as they just do a few things, man, then, then they're actually on the rock. Jesus, would you remind us this morning that you alone, you alone build the house on the rock. Would you remind us of how desperate we are for you? 
that we need you more than the breath in our lungs, more than the blood that flows through our veins. We need you. And so would you, would you begin to shape and mold us into your image, the image of righteousness. Would the words of our mouth and the actions of our life declare that to the world around us? Would the world look in and see mercy and peacemaking, purity? And would they ask why? Like, why would you do that? Why would you extend mercy? Why would you take the blows in order to restore that relationship? Might we be people who look right back at them and say, because there was a time when I needed mercy. Because there was a time when I needed peace making in my life. And the God of all things did not withhold it from me, but he waded into my mess and my brokenness and extended grace and mercy to me. And he took the persecution for righteousness sake. Might you be to us our everything. Might you be to us our all. Might you be to us our greatest treasure. Help us to pray this into our lives. That your spirit might do a work in us. I pray these things in your name. In the name of Jesus, amen.